0: How's it going, everyone? Today's special guest is uh, my good friend, Eric Stolanski. You know Eric, um, obviously, from his Broken Lizard group, and specifically Rabbit uh, from the Super Troopers movies, and uh, the master of the fun police, uh, my favorite movie, Club Dread. But uh, So, Eric, it's great to have you on here. Hey, man, deep cut. Club Dread-liker. I like that. Yeah, you know what's funny? I first... When it first came out on DVD, uh, I remember going with my friends from high school down to the local video store where that was still a thing. And we had just watched Super Troopers. And then we, I was, that was before like IMDb or when I was out there actually looking, trying to dig what people were doing. And uh, I see it like, oh, for the guys who did Super Troopers. So we rented it. And the movie, the sheer ridiculousness of that movie is so heartwarming <laughs> that you were able to get people like Bill Paxton. And uh, who's the other guy in there? MC Gainey. MC Gainey playing like so against the grade. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so fun how you're able to get people like that to like partake in what you guys do.
1: Yeah. It's funny. Once you create like a silly movie that's um, you kind of, you know, build up a little bit of an audience, then people kind of get it. I think when Bill was first thinking about, we offered him, uh, you know, the part. <laughs> and, uh, he, I, uh, It's the kind of thing where like, that generation probably hadn't seen Super Troopers, and so they end up asking their kids. And their kids are like, yeah, it's fun. You should do it. And then they, as dads, they say, all right, well, my kids said you guys uh, are okay. So
0: I, I thought I should do it for them. Is it tough to kind of – like when you do – like when you get Brian Cox, is that something where he's the first hurdle when it comes to your concept? Like when you write a scene or a, a movie, you need that – that heavy that people aren't used to. How do you get somebody like Brian Cox to play this leader of this band of misfits? <laughs>
1: yeah, the Brian Cox uh, journey was interesting because when we first wrote Super Troopers and we're looking for the financing to make and we got the money, we went to a casting director and, and they say, put a list together of you know your, your wish list. Mm. And so our wish list originally for Captain O'Hagan as a comedy, you know, you kind of start with uh, the Bill Murray's of the world, right? Yeah, John Goodman's, you know, and you kind of think of the comedians. But ultimately, with a low-budget independent film, you kind of start going from those A-listers that want a lot of money, start going down the list. Now, we went out sort of wide on a, to a casting director, and we started getting some incoming um, headshots and resumes. And we got a call from uh, an agent saying, I have a client, he's an unbelievably outstanding actor, one of the best in the world, uh, named Brian Cox, and would love for you to consider him for the role of Captain O'Hagan." And then we looked at him like, is this Hannibal Lecter? Hey, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he hadn't done really comedies, per se. He had been Hannibal Lecter. But we really liked him in Rushmore. He's very uh, sunny, yep. funny in Rushmore. And the reason that he wanted to be in Super Troopers is he was always pigeonholed as being very dramatic. And he had traveled uh, doing King Lear all over the world and India and everything. But he never really was considered for comedic roles. And he, growing up, always loved Jerry Lewis in comedy. But he never got considered for traditionally comedic roles. And so they asked if we consider him. We were like, wow, I mean, this guy is so much gravitas. I mean, he's so, he's such a, a, an actor with so much heft that it would be interesting if he was in our movie because, you know, he would ground the movie and then we would just fly around him. Right. That's kind of what happened. But then he turned out to be, he's just incredibly funny as well. He has great timing and
0: he's just a, a terrific actor and he can do all sorts of genres. Seed like when he bites the soap and spits it out, is that already created... Or is that something where you kind of go out the fly with someone like him?
1: Well, the truth is on Super Troopers, we didn't have any money to sort of improvise much, so we scripted everything. Uh, but there was something funny about that. He, we, we had written the scene, and I say, hey, hey bite it, Cap. Make him make, make look like a dick. And uh, <laughs> he's just about to bite it. And the prop master obviously had to come up with something that wasn't soap, because, you know, you're not going to bite soap. You've got to do a bunch of takes. And so she decided that she was going to carve a uh, bar of soap out of uh, a chunk of white, uh, white chocolate. And Brian's just about to take a bite. Cameras are rolling. He's just about to take a bite. Like, Hold on a second. Is this uh, white chocolate? I'm diabetic, goddammit. Is this going to try to kill me? And so somehow in the middle of upstate New York, the prop master had to go track down. We had to, you know, shoot something else and come back and shoot the scene. But the prop master had to track down sugar-free diabetic friendly white chocolate and then carve that out of the soap and carve the soap out of that
0: obviously you guys are all laughing together having a good time and you're able to kind of i mean the outtakes are great too but is it difficult to work with actors that aren't used to the comedy side of it where you have you guys have to still be having fun but you don't know how this actor is going to kind of read and deal with you guys I guess we've been lucky. Uh, you know, you get
1: together beforehand and rehearse everything. So when we shot Club Dread, for example, we went down to Mexico six weeks before I we started shooting. And and Bill came down and we just ran scenes all the time and read them out loud. So you, you work on that process.
0: Was it, it how interesting was it working with Michael Clark Duncan at and Salmon?
1: That was great. We didn't have as much uh, rehearsal time with Mike. He kind of showed up. We did a little bit of rehearsing, so we got that timing down. But, you know, He was also an Oscar uh, award nominee from Green Mile. And so there there weren't that many actors that we thought could pull off this really intimidating boxer and be comedic. (laughs) So we knew he was in Talladega Nights. And so we reached out to Adam McKay and we said, hey, how's Michael? I think you could handle a big comedic role. And he's like, oh, yeah, for sure. We were shooting scenes. where there's no script. And he's just jumping in and improvising and really funny. And uh, so we got that uh, the stamp of approval from Adam McKay, who obviously is, you know, a genius and a comedic A-list uh, director and writer and everything. So we, we felt comfortable with Michael, and he just jumped in and kicked ass.
0: I love it. So I first saw Super Troopers, first, like when it first came out, like I loved it, saw it theater, bought the DVD, uh, everything. But then it, it almost seemed like people finally realized that Puddle Cruiser came out before. So that jump... Would you guys do Puddle Cruiser to Super Troopers, what's going in between there? Is this like a, hey, guys, this is our last chance to do what we want to do in like a big idea picture?
1: Yeah, for sure. That was definitely, uh, you know, we gave a crack at Puddle Cruiser. Making movies are so expensive. You know, Puddle Cruiser was low budget. It was uh, very, very low budget. We did a lot of mostly favors. And it was sort of our film school. You know, it's kind of learning where to put the camera. You know, I think it turned out pretty well and it we got into film festivals, including Sundance. Um, it was our learning experience. But after that the budget jumped a little bit for super troopers even though it was uh, still low budget it was about a million dollars and you don't get many cracks uh if that doesn't work so we did feel that that was our last shot so when you asked um if we thought it was a last shot probably you know we had been doing sketch comedy in New York city for many years puddle cruiser and then super troopers and if that you know went the way of the dodo bird i think we as broken lizard probably would have gone the way of the dodo bird too
0: right so Obviously, the movie's a cult classic, the first Super Troopers. You have the opportunity to do the second one. Was there a fear that the second one or something you guys want to do wouldn't live up to Super Troopers?
1: Sure, of course. Yeah, I think sequels are the hardest thing you can do. And, you know, we didn't want to do it right away. We were nervous about sequels. Um, but as the years went by, people kept asking. You know, you'd be on the street and people would ask, Hey, where's Super Troopers 2? Where's Super Troopers 2? And we, as a comedy group, we want to try different things, but eventually we went back to search line. And we said, you know, man, we're getting a lot of requests for super troopers too. I think there's a real demand for it. And they just didn't know if the audience was still there that many years later. And so they said, well, I don't know. We just don't know. We don't know if don't know. They, you know, they were on search. So they weren't going to put up the financing for it, but we, uh, we said, I don't know. It just feels like there's a lot of people asking for it out there. You feel it on social media. You feel it when you interact with people at restaurants or ball games And uh, we just felt like people wanted to see it. So um, we were very nervous, you know, sequels, sequelitis. Everyone always makes fun of sequels. It's hard to pull off. The best we tried to do is just try to get back to a place where, when we wrote Super Troopers, you know, nobody knew who we were. So the only thing we had to go off was, does this joke make us laugh? (laughs) You're sitting in a room, you're throwing up a meow joke, you know, does this make you laugh? That's the best we could go off. And all we wanted to do in Super Troopers Super 2 is try to get back to that sense of, like, when we're writing this joke about, uh, like, the the French party papers pulling over the horse or the Danny DeVito joke, you know, did they make us laugh? And if they did, we wanted to try to write that into the scene and try to get back to that sense. And, and, then, and then it's up to the audience. They're either going to like it or not. Some people like it. Some people hate it. You can't do much about it.
0: Well, it was cool to see the movie go number one. And the true testament to you guys is that you were able to crowdsource that which probably told the movie studio, hey, like the fans want this. And they're willing to put the money where their mouth is.
1: That's really what showed them when they saw that. They were like, wow, there, there really is a demand for this. They didn't know. They just didn't know if it was going to be there. And then when we did the crowdfunding,
0: it showed that there was. So when you guys all get together, Broken Lizard, what is, I know we talked about this when we had dinner last time I saw you, but what really piqued my interest here is that you guys will get in a room and literally just talk through everything get ideas down is there ever stuff that was too out there where you guys are kind of like man we caved we can't even put this out here like this scares <laughs> people i
1: don't know i mean i feel like it, again if we were like in that room and it really made us laugh we were willing to put it out there i can't think if there is i know i have to think about it it's been many many years since we've written all these movies but um I'm trying to think if there's anything that we said, ah, that doesn't work, or we tried and it got cut. Uh, we, You know, we used to do sketches in New York City for five years before we started making movies, and, and there were sketches that you would throw out, and you'd hear, oh, ah, you know, you kind of get those groans. And then you kind of knew that you wouldn't do that in the next show. So I feel like that stuff probably got out of our system more when we were doing live stage stuff.
0: Now, has there ever been a case of ego, like healthy ego with you guys where you all have your own unique way of delivery or writing? How are you guys able to kind of blend that together where it seems like, and obviously people have their tiffs and they might disagree with something, but it seems like you guys are very genuine and you all support each other. So how does that work in the writing process? Right, for you guys, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's always a challenge. I mean, we've been good friends since college. So when we were writing movies together, uh, it was always pretty civil. Um, There were times when you'd throw in a joke and if you it's kind of like Survivor where there's five of us and you had to get a majority if you wanted a joke to stick. So if you threw an idea for a joke out and people like, I don't know, I'm not really seeing it. First, you might try to... um, see if you get someone else on your side, like, hey, Paul, remember I threw that out to you the other day? You kinda liked it, you know, what do you think? You think you could, uh, you know, back me up on this one? Because it's just sort of a trust thing, right? Because you're just writing on a piece of paper and a lot of stuff you don't read doesn't always work, but so then they're like, well, why don't you try to read it? So then you do a read and if that doesn't quite get it, you might get it on a bunch of feet and try to act it out and like get the timing down to show that it works. And right. uh, the final default, the final nuclear option, as you say, I will staple my balls to the wall for this joke. And normally, if you are willing to go that far, they're saying, OK, we'll give it a try because you can always
0: cut it out in the edit room. Right. Now, what if the joke falls flat and fans are like, man, that joke is the worst I've ever heard? <laughs> do, the, do the four other guys go, OK, let's find a wall? <laughs>
1: We should write those down. We should write down the jokes that we staple our balls to the wall for. Um, that's the thing is you do a, you know, a test screening, right? And then if, if you get really bad feedback during a test screen, the beauty is you can go back to that room and just give rid of
0: something. Well, obviously, when you guys are doing the live stuff or like skits, like it, there must be a different sense of fear and trepidation in terms of reaction. But how do you kind of create that same type of tension and excitement as when you film in front of a camera for a movie, like you have to, are you able to capture that same type of thing, or is it different, different feeling for you altogether? Yeah, it's very different, just because
1: you know, obviously, a cast and crew, or if they're on set, are told never laugh because that ruins a take, right? So the best you can hope for is you you're acting, and you can kind of see someone trying to hold back a laugh. But it's very different because you don't get that immediate sort of at, you know burst of laughter that you get from a live audience. You no, know? it's very quiet on the set, so. I always like trying to see if I can make someone almost try to crack. But now we're really the take
0: I imagine that scene at Beer Fest with Jay is homeless and whatever. Like, It's, it's so obscene and ridiculous ah. and heartfelt. But scenes seems like that, how hard is it for you guys to keep that together? Like, I assume there's got to be a ton of outtakes.
1: Yeah. Um, that's the fun part is when you're just off camera and someone's maybe doing <laughs> a, a take for the first time and, you're, and it's so fun to watch um and super troopers too i really love when heffernan's getting zapped by the microphone and he's eating m&ms and he gets zapped and like all the m&ms go flying you know or in super troopers when he's like covered in powdered sugar and you know you're just off camera because you, you you know you write that stuff in a script and then you're you can't wait to see it shot right uh, but you don't want to ruin a take i ruined a take well it actually it's so sal- it was salvageable because it happened we were able to cut right out of it but we um we were shooting Beer Fest, and it was a scene where we're tasting the beer that we brewed for the very first time, and everybody goes around, and they make a comment on it, and we said, okay, we kind of got what we scripted, but now why doesn't everybody just try to improvise a line? And it goes around, and then it gets to Jay, and Jay <laughs> says, uh, I wanna, I wanna freeze it, and then thaw in the spring. I wanna freeze it, skate on, it and then thaw in the spring, and. Drink it or something like that. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly, but I'd never heard that before. And so when he said it, I, I snorted, I laughed, and I, I tried to hold back the laugh, but I couldn't. And I snorted in my beer. And then the beer shot back up in my face and it totally covered my, my wardrobe. But I think we we're able to uh, cut out just before my laugh ruined the take. And that his improvised, improvised scene made the movie. But then I had to run to wardrobe and it, took, it re- took like 20 minutes from the shoot to dry off my shirt,
0: get me a new one, put on reapplying makeup. I love that. So when you were out in public, I, is for you, like, does it get, obviously you're someone who's forever grateful for your fans, but are you ever out at dinner or walking around um, with the wife and be like, oh, drink some maple syrup or is, is that stuff ever get to you to the point where, hey, I'm just, that's just a character? No, I don't mind.
1: I don't mind it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was at a movie theater once, and I was with my wife and and in-laws. And at the time, they dinner. It was a pretty new relationship. We weren't married very long, and I was living in California. Came back to Minnesota, and and we went to a movie, and we came out, and there was a guy waiting there with two bottles of maple syrup and some poster to sign. And they were sort of like, "What's what's going on here? I don't quite understand why." this person has maple syrup and they want you to drink it with them. You know, just coming out of a movie theater and to the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you didn't have your fans, you, right. You, you want you, they want, you want to have your career, right? Like you wanted, you want to have success in your career if you didn't have your fans. So I can't imagine ever not wanting to have fans, uh, do that kind of stuff. I think it's fantastic. I love it.
0: It's kind of cool that every movie you guys are in, you each have that seed or a couple of seeds of those movies where, that resonates with people, and I think people are always gonna remember that. So that's great. And uh Super Troopers 2 when you guys start off the movie with Cracklin' Bacon. Ridiculous again, but has there been any talk of you guys actually forming that band and doing stuff?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Soder and I sort of play. Lemme really enjoy learning the drums, you know, for that thing. He took lessons and took it seriously, and Jade, you know, dabbling a little bit on the acoustic guitar, but yeah, I don't know. It's we barely it's very hard to even find time to write movies these days let alone like form a band and travel around but uh i don't know i love rock and roll you know like yeah. we got together and you know it came to Shine the Down concert and i'm a huge shinedown fan and just a huge musician music fan and so and i are i don't know i think that we're more in awe of like uh, musicians and the musician lifestyle and we love the idea of the five was kind of being a band right technically even though we don't necessarily play uh, instruments and sing but uh i don't know that's sort of our fantasy i think it's like, one of the reasons that we wrote the opening is that we have a fantasy of being in a band. You know, I always loved Van Halen growing up in ACDC and, and that rock and roll kind of lifestyle, uh, the big arenas. I mean, I can't imagine you're night It's got to be the coolest thing in the world.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's um, all right. Come on. If you, you could be on tour with any band, like you, you yourself, who would you love to open up for? Shine down. Awesome. I pictured you as maybe more like a uh, James Taylor, maybe if we just if it's just really. fix that yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> what well, about shine down unplugged maybe
0: yeah maybe yeah it'd be fun I don't
1: know um, Waiting for them to maybe say hey why don't you uh, join us on guitar one of these days
0: yeah wait well, hey, next time we come up to the show I'm sure uh, I will definitely float an idea out there don't be surprised if they call you bluff on that
1: I would uh, it would make my lifetime my buddy, awesome. Mark, my buddy, Mark Parrish, he uh, lives here in Minneapolis. He used to play, uh, I think. Uh, he, I, came I, a,
0: uh, yeah, he came out a to a a down acoustic thing. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, he uh, used to be the Captain Minnesota Wild. He's, he's a huge Shinedown fan. But uh, he's also pals of the guys at Nickelback. And they had him come out when he played here. Oh, Microsoft. that's where
0: I met him first. Because I used to do the Nickelback security. And so when he came out, when you put him in touch with me, I'm like, is this the same Mike Parr- Parrish? I'm like, holy crap. Hellraiser.
1: Yeah, he walked down on stage and he played guitar
0: with that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Which was, I couldn't believe he got to do that. I was so jealous. I'm like, oh, man. We'll make it work. He's like, you get to make movies. I'm like, yeah, but you got to play guitar, like, in an arena with a
0: huge band. Uh, Speaking of sports, is it true you wrote a screenplay with Jared Allen when he was on the Vikings? So how does that come about?
1: (laughs) Uh, Jared and I became pals, you know, uh, living in Minneapolis. He was the Vikings obviously forever. And, uh, we, there's a guy named John Dornbos who was a long snapper, the Philadelphia Eagles. And he was in Beerfest. He, at the time, I think he was, uh, in between gigs, like with, I think he started with the Buffalo Bills. He had gotten caught. He's waiting to get on another team. Uh, it was, oh, sorry, I'm recording this so my phone. It just dropped over there. We were having uh, technical issues with my computer, something. I had to do some my phone. Anyway, it fell. Anyway, so uh, Dornbos uh, had a little time off. He came out. He wanted to be in Beer Fest, and I said, you know, the only thing we can really offer you, you're not union. We can give you a background thing. There's no lines. He's like, I don't care. So he came out, and he was on the British team. So in Beer Fest, this guy from the Philadelphia East, he hung out the whole time. He showed up every day as background, and uh, he just loved being on set and soaking it all in. And then he got called immediately to be the long snapper for the Eagles when a guy got injured, and he ended up replacing the guy and then being a pro bowler. And he said, uh, hey, if you're in the Vikings, man, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. I'll get you tickets whatever. My pal Jared Allen plays for them. And I was like, Jared Allen, what? And so he, he kind of connected us. We became friends. Jared came to my wedding. I went to Jared's wedding. We stayed in touch. And he approached me with an idea one day, and I was like, ah, man. He's such a great guy, but I always get nervous because every day I get approached with 10 ideas, right? Everybody, 100%. Everybody thinks that wherever they work, that should be the next comedy <laughs> that you got to write. You know, and, and no one understands that it. it takes like a year to write a comedy, and we're already writing with Brooklyn. There's like two comedies, so it's not like time is of availability. You know? There's no availability to write. Anyway, to begin with, so he came up with this idea, and, and when he pitched it to me, I'm like, holy shit, that's actually a really good idea. It's got it had a great hook and I could see it actually, you know, something being marketable. It could be sold. So I reached out to Soder and I said, hey, and I pitched it to him. And he's like, that's a good idea. So we uh, we started working on it and developing it, you know, and Paul and I did like the physical writing, but it was sort of Jared's based on Jared's life. And um, and so he sat down and told us a bunch of stories. And so I, you know, go over to his house, hang out and he tell the stories and I kind of record it. And then uh, Soda and I would craft it into a screenplay.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, yeah, this is very, uh, it must be difficult, like you said, to kind of people, all these people have ideas, but specifically a guy who's really good at one thing has this kind of idea that, oh, maybe it can work on this, this playing field. It's kind of cool. It was, uh, you know, he, he's a very charismatic guy.
1: Yes. And he tells great stories. He's a really funny storyteller, he's got a really great sense of humor. Um, and he's just really a multi-talented guy. He, like owns restaurants and businesses. Now he's retired. Even when he's playing, he's, he he was an entrepreneur and businessman as
0: well. When you're in New York City with Whit Handman, at what point did you realize? Like, I assume because he that guy worked with like Dustin Hoffman type people. And so, what are you pulling from that training? Like, what from that training kind of helped you jump into the comedy side? Huh.
1: Well, you know, the comedy thing was already happening before I started taking that. We were doing the Broken Lizard thing in New York City. We started that back in college, and so we went down to New York to try our hand at sketch comedy. But while we were performing sketch comedy in New York, I decided to go to acting school. And after I graduated from a two-year acting school, then I started working with this guy named Wynn Handman, who was sort of a postgraduate guy that used to take classes with. And, uh, yeah, he'd worked with a lot of big-name actors I guess what I took from well what I what I learned from working with him was uh developing the depth of character we started working on more character work than scene work and uh so then I started translating that a little bit sort of into uh I took that and I translated that to film I guess the first movie we did was called Puddle Cruiser and in that I played a character named Freaky Ricky and uh, yeah. that's from that, during that time when it was all happening at the same time, I was uh, learning and trying to uh, develop and have more depth of character.
0: If you could be any one of your characters you've created for the rest of your life, what character would it be?
1: <laughs> oh, I guess I'm
0: probably closest to Rabbit.
1: I think Rabbit's probably the closest. I mean, I think the character in Super Troopers is probably closest to all five of us.
0: Interesting. But,
1: uh, we made a movie in, uh, I hope I wouldn't be my character in Club Dread, but. Uh, During COVID, who cares? Exactly. Just kill everybody, man. Um, in Puddle Cruiser, I played a character I, which I think is like a fun way to live life. So if I, if I had the ability to be any character, my character Freaky Reaky that I played in Puddle Cruiser that I was just talking about, I think would be the most fun to uh, live continually.
0: I love that. In Beer Fest, and this is kind of, I, I was just thinking about this. There, I've read a lot of articles where it's like, there's no way these guys drank all this beer. Well, obviously. So, what was the okay? Well, two more questions. Did you guys actually drink beer on set for to make it for some of the stuff? And what was the liquid you guys had to drink when they like when it gets like really crazy? Sure,
1: yeah. Well, uh, the, our, our normal answer is, yeah, of course it was real beer. Yeah, right. All, so all. You'd all be dead. We'd all be dead, yeah. Uh, and you start, at like six, you start working at like 6 in the morning, you'd make it until about 9. Um, so... So obviously, and also because of insurance reasons, you know, a prop master is not allowed to bring alcohol. Oh, to, I didn't know that. Interesting. That, yeah. So like, you know, for liability purposes, you can't just be like pounding and partying. You know, <laughs> someone could get injured and die and then there's liability for the studios. So uh, we had non-alcoholic beer, but it had to be dark beer. It was non-alcoholic beer mixed with coffee, which was disgusting. Um, and then for the really big food stuff, obviously, you had to have digital effects because you couldn't even drink that much liquid. I mean, you watch that and it's like ridiculous. There's no way anybody anybody, could do this. Nobody can consume that much liquid over a period of time.
0: It is fascinating, though, how that movie, again, another project of yours, resonates with that generation of, I mean, I think everyone's been to those parties or partied like that. I know I have. And to have you guys go out there and put that out there, it just, it just makes it fun again, where it's just like these guys are having a blast. It looks like film of that was just incredible.
1: It was a ton of fun, and it's always fun when people say, "Hey, we have an annual beer fest, and we love to uh, play your movie and like you know use some of the games you play." Or we have already used some of the games in the past, and we, we uh, always incorporate those into our beer fest, or you know around October, or you know I, sometimes it's like multi generations within a family. You know, you have grandmas and moms, and like college kids, and uh, I don't know. It's always fun that they sort of think of that movie, and it, it's just silly. It's kind of our love letter to beer. We really, it was a parody, originally when we wrote that movie, it was a parody and a takeoff of John Van Dam, John Claude Van Dam's Bloodsport.
0: Yeah, I can tell by the signage how, like, stuff flips down, like Frank Dukes and all that, Cug Lee and all that, yeah, interesting, that, was that would make the, sense.
1: The Kumite, the underground Kumite, yeah. and they gotta find it, and it's a secret, <laughs> and... Um,
0: Fascinating.
1: <laughs> we always love like Patrick Swayze and those John Claude Van Damme movies and Seagal movies. Yeah. So, I don't know. We're like, Hey, let's make a funny one where it's a, a sports takeoff. So it's like our, I'm um, taking Rudy and blood sport and throwing a little uh, broken lizard flavor on it.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. Now I got to watch that movie again, just for the last for that now. Um, so obviously with COVID going on, affecting everyone's lives, how has this affected you on a personal level, whether physically or mentally, and in terms, you know, I know you mentioned you guys are writing, but that must put a damper on some of the stuff that's traveling and group gatherings, correct?
1: Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, for everybody society, I don't know, you Just you just want to go out and, uh, you know, support restaurants and support friends and businesses, and you want uh, your city to be vibrant and. I don't know. I Everything's mean, so quiet. You go out and it's just dead. I don't know. It's very, they, I don't know. It's just kind of depressing, I guess. I mean, we'll all get through it and we have to support each other and we try to do the best we can to try to lift everybody up. But yeah, I mean, I used to travel three four times a week and man, I've traveled twice to Los Angeles now. We, we, we work via Zoom, right? you know, but I used to do a lot of speaking. I'd go out and talk to the military and corporations and I uh, do comic cons, you know, all sorts of stuff. But it was just like a lot of interacting with people. And now I barely interact with people at, at all. Maybe you see them in a restaurant or you go out and see people on the streets. But, yeah, it's, it's very sort of isolating and there's a lot of solitude. You know, That's you a- shine down concert, and, you know, hang out. Right. Like go eat butt meat. We go eat steaks and then go to a rock concert.
0: That's like that PS steak is an incredible restaurant. Yeah, it's awesome. Um,
1: so that, I miss that stuff, you know, the socialization interaction it's cool that we can do this and we do that, you know, we do this with broken lizard when we write, but, um, and it's kind of, it's, it, it's at first it was kind of weird, but now it's kind of normal,
0: isn't it? Like, I yeah, it's, we're talking and hanging out. Yeah, we, we are, we actually yeah. are, we're actually in the same room. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm just, I was curious because when COVID clears up or like whatever, uh, whatever happens with it. Um, Will, you, will it be tough as a comedian not to make reference to it? I know there must be stand-up comedians who you can't use the same joke over again. So is it? are you able to find humor in this situation? Or is there a fine line between – obviously, it's a real thing that's affecting people. People are dying. I get that. But yeah, for me, laughing and humor is a coping mechanism to kind of deal with. Hey, it could be a shitty day, but I can still laugh about it. So for yeah. you guys, do you find it – Do you have to navigate kind of this post-COVID world in your future writing? Or is this something we guys can kind of just be to forget about it?
1: You know, I would think a uh, more traditional stand-up would probably incorporate it more. But, like, us as uh, sketch comedy writers and movies, like, the two movies that we're currently writing, they won't reference it. Um, Gotcha. It it just sort of dates things, and uh, we try to make it a little more universal.
0: Love it. All right. One of the most incredible things about you, which is why I'm glad you're on here, um, is you were born without a fibula, and so that's something I didn't realize even when I was saw you at a concert or at dinner, and I never really it never crossed my mind to even. So when I read about it and what the organizations you're part of, how it's just mind blowing. It's it's amazing what you're able to do and motivate others through a disability that a lot of people don't even know you have. That's funny. So
1: when we were at dinner and we're at the concert, you didn't even know I
0: had that? No. And so we left the concert, and I think I was thinking, because I know it's like a little gate issue, like a gate, but that's also the same day as Sanjay I found on the steps, and he literally broke his ankle. Yeah. So I'm like, I was just looking at people's legs, make sure people were falling. So I didn't know if it was uh, – a thing, and so I start. I got home, did some research. I find out. I'm like, Brent, Zach, do you guys realize? And they're like, What? What are you talking about? I go, Yeah. They're like, That's not real. I go, I think it's real. And then <laughs> months ago, you posted a picture. I think by a pool.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, with your leg, your prosthetic, and I'm like, This is this is a very unique story. And for you to do what you've done without letting it be a hindrance to you is pretty motivating.
1: Thanks. Well, I, you know, I love working with uh, military groups, as you and I have talked about in the, in the past. And uh, I was down in uh, Duck Key, you know, one of the keys in Florida. And I was working with this group of Wounded Warriors as part of the uh, WWP. And they were taking a group of uh, Wounded Warriors and they were going to go deep sea diving. And for a week, they were going to train. And after five days of training, they were going to go do a dive, and they had never, ever gone down before, hadn't been certified, and they were going to all try to do this in five days. So I went in to do some like kind of team building stuff, and we did a bunch of exercises, and I talked to them, and I work with, I consult with a school company called Game On. And so the idea was to try to get, the you know, team build them a little bit up, because they're really going to have to rely on each other uh, after a couple of days to do this right. dive. I think they're going down. Uh, a hundred, a hundred feet, wouldn't it be a hundred, a hundred feet, right? That a hundred yards would be too much. It'd be a hundred feet, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred yards would be impressive. That
1: would be nuts. Yeah. A hundred <laughs> feet. So, but that's still pretty deep for a first dive and they were going down. And, um, so after working and hanging out with these guys for five days, I don't know. I just felt sometimes I learn more from the military guys than I, than, than they can learn from me. You know, I don't know. It's, it's just their, um, Mental fortitude and their ability to like just keep on keep on trucking when things are difficult, and they have traumatic brain injuries, but they're uh, working together and camaraderie and doing interesting things and trying to just uh, keep their life very fulfilling and, and full of activity and adventure. And uh, so then after I'd worked with them, my wife and I went down to Key West and I, I took that photograph where I, you yep. my prosthetic is exposed, you know, and I wrote a little thing just saying it's just such an honor to work with these guys. And sometimes I learn more from them. And I've always kind of hid the fact I always wanted to be normal growing up and right. you know, kid getting picked on or. I uh, get laughed at, like you said, when I walk, I kind of have a little bit of a limp, and I, I always just wanted to be normal, just like any teenage kid, you know, wants to be normal, and I wanted to be accepted and be like everybody else, but, you know, you get older, and you realize, you know, sometimes having a unique story is more interesting, Right. and I see these wounded warriors going around, and they're not covering anything up, you know, they they'll have any sort of different leg, they put on a running leg, a swimming leg, they don't wear long pants, you know, they just, they wear it for what it is. And so I was like, you know, sometimes I learn more from them than uh, they can learn from me. And I, that's when I posted that picture. And I got a lot of really, really, like, cool, warm, positive response from posting that and just being honest and genuine and just saying, hey, this is who I am. I got a prosthetic. I'm down here. It's hot. And I'm wearing shorts. I'm not going to cover it up. And, you know. Pretty-
0: right. Yeah, it must be very enlightening, to, enlightening for you with kids growing up with disability like, the, like you might have, like you had. They're currently having it, and for them to kind of look at someone like you who is a successful comedian, do what you do, but you're not afraid to be who you are in public, it must must be very beneficial to your soul just hearing these stories and being that type of beacon for someone who wants to play sports but is afraid to get bullied at school or is afraid they're not going to get that job because they only have one leg or one arm and stuff like that. So it must be – It's a credible thing what you do with these these people.
1: Thanks. I just uh, want to lead by example and just let them know, you know, bullying's never going to go away. Uh, Prejudice against sort of like disabilities will never go away, I don't think. You know, like it's hard to get work in Hollywood because people say, well, you got one leg. You can't do the things that two people do. And no matter how much sort of advocacy for it, I don't think that sort of prejudice will ever go away. But the best you can do is just... Try to surround yourself with a group of guys that, you know, trust you, you trust them. And, you know, we can make movies together and show, well, wow, maybe you can do these things. You know, why do we have to think a certain way when we can see things in a different way? And I just wanted to sort of lead by example like that and just say, let's just see it for what it is. And it's just uh, you can call it a handicap, you can call it a disability, you can call it a challenge, you can call it one leg. But like, why do we have to see it as something that's, you know, limits our possibilities?
0: Right, it, it got me thinking after I learned about you, like the issue of your fibula. I don't remember a lot of movies where they openly promote a someone with a prosthetic acting. I think the last time someone, it was, a, I think it was a veteran, but the the, remit, or the movie Battleship, where the one veteran actually was a uh, had both legs blown off in combat, and they actually got cast as a paraplegic. And it got me thinking: is that something that's is it taboo to? Because you you could film all your movies and no one ever know. Yeah. So is it? But is this something where mainstream and people like? Well, we can't have this person in love with a guy or a girl with one leg or a guy with. It's, it must be. Is it weird like that? Well, it's always, you
1: know, it's always seen as either a comedy, like for example in Deuce Bigelow. 100%. Right, one guy got an artificial leg and that's a joke, it's a, right. it's a, it's a comedic set piece that they laugh at. And that's now that's never great for any teenage kids who are like trying to just be normal. Right. You know? uh, or it's like in um, Forrest Gump where you know, he, Lieutenant Dan has his leg blown off and then he's a guy shrimp he, guy. Yeah, a guy who's, uh, you know, got injured in war, which is real. But those are most of the parts. But I would love it if, like, you just saw Yellowstone and one of the dudes just is a guy with a prosthetic leg. But they don't talk about it necessarily. It's just It just is what it is because that's how people
0: are. Right. Like, you look at the shows like Friends or Seinfeld, and they're great for whatever reason if you like them. But where is that one character where you're kind of like, oh, you don't talk about the leg, but you know he's got a fake leg. And then... Maybe in other episodes you hear about how we lost it or it's just it's. It, you bring up a very valid point where you only see it if it's in a comedy. It's always like that that prat, like that kind of that joke.
1: Yeah, like Howard Stern used to joke about, you know, it's always like the butt of a joke. But hopefully we'll get past that, you know, right. As a, I'm, as a comedian, like, I don't care. I'm not that PC. Like, I don't care if it's a joke, but I hope that we can also evolve where it's more than that.
0: Well, that's why I think it's great, because you've never made a joke about that in one of your movies, and it. I like the fact that you don't do that, because you kind of, you don't make it a, it's not there to be a joke. Like, you're still Eric, who has one leg, but I'm, here I am. Like, I, I like that about it.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to be able to do all the Broken Lizard part, you know, never really bring it out early on in career, but sort of like do five or six movies and be like, oh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I just made all those movies with a prosthetic leg. 100%. And then get people to like kind of get out of that mind frame that it has to be somebody who got injured in a war or it has to be a butt of a joke. Right. Which either of those are fine, but they can also have the third option, which is just normal people have it.
0: Is there subject matter that you will not joke about or... By you, I mean you guys as Broken Lizard.
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, yeah, we don't want to. uh, I would say, you know, one thing we always kind of try to focus on is that most of our humor is not mean. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. And that's pretty conscious. Right. right. We like to have our – try to make our comedy pretty lighthearted. And, like, we don't like to be – we don't like to go for jokes where you're making fun of somebody else. Oftentimes, a lot of the jokes are that we'll make fun of ourselves, right? And if, it's, if it's Farva, right? It's Farva getting tackled, uh, tackling a burger guy and then going to jail and getting a of sugar, right? And most <laughs> of the jokes are like, you're making fun of us, and we'll take the butt of the joke versus being mean to somebody else.
0: Right. To go back a little bit, you also filmed videos for P90X.
1: I was in one of the, uh, one of the DVDs for P90X, to so apply metrics,
0: yeah. So how does that come about?
1: <laughs> yeah that was interesting you know like i i was trying to get i, I was in a gym one day i saw a sign that said come try the hardest thing you'll be a part of it's uh it was called extreme home home fitness right and it didn't really exist at the time back in those days it wasn't even that long ago but 15 years ago i was like it was richard simmons or jane fonda right there weren't like right. extreme home fitness videos and the Cro- crossfit craze hadn't hit so, I, and it said, but you have to commit to 90 days, and if you do it, you'll be part of this test group, and uh, we'll get you in shape. And it doesn't cost you anything, it's just but you have to commit to it. And so, I saw the flyer at the gym, pulled it down, called the phone number, and I think it was Club Dread. I was trying to get in shape to go down to Club Dread because I knew it was going to be a tropical island, and I just wanted to be in shape for the uh, as an actor. And uh, so, I did this test group for 90 days, this P90X thing, and after like 60 days, like I said, I always kind of hid. Uh, the fact that i had a prosthetic After like 60 days i think i showed up one day in shorts and tony horton who's instructor was like <laughs> what the hell's that and i was like i got a prosthetic he's like what you've been doing this for 60 days on a prosthetic i had no idea just like you didn't know right right so then he's like that's really cool and then after we finished the test group he said what would you think about being in the plyometrics discipline you know on the video shooting it he said i you know it, it would show a lot of people that were sitting at home having trouble, struggling with their health, diabetes, whatever, all sorts of issues. Uh, you know, if a guy can do it with one leg. You know, maybe they'll give it a shot. And, you know, like I said, I was trying to do these five or six movies without letting anybody know and then going back and saying, you know, I did those without. And I thought, you know, it's a little premature. I've only shot two movies and then Club Dread is the third. Right. It was a little bit early that I wanted to actually come out about having a prosthetic leg. But I thought about it, you know, I said, well, maybe this is something I've been hiding my whole life. Maybe this is actually something that could be seen as a positive. you know. Maybe it's something that's like a blessing that I was given and that I can help some people with their health and uh, inspiration. Inspiration is kind of a weird word. I always think of that as like Tony Robbins. But, you know, just, in, you know, inspiring like people to get out and exercise a little bit more, right? Right. And, uh, yeah, so I said, all right. All right, Horton. At first, first I said, no, I'm not doing that. in No way. And he's like, come on, you know, and, and we're good pals. He's like a brother to me, and he kind of persuaded me to do it. And I'm like, all right. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I got in an imply video. And funny thing, a couple people thought I took it like as an acting job, you know, like,
0: yeah, interesting. I responded
1: as an acting <laughs> job. But no, I, I just did it to try to show people that, you know, if I could do it with one, like maybe some people could feel like they could get out and do some little extra things, you know. I
0: love that. So, my last question for you. Will you guys ever release uh, Tinfoil Monkey Agenda or anything about that? Because you read all these articles and you hear all this kind of crazy theories about it. Like, how come that has not made the uh, public eye yet? That's a good question.
1: I thought for some reason maybe it had been on one of our DVD extras.
0: I don't think I've seen it.
1: And I think there was a time when we were cutting together a documentary. And I, didn't, I thought maybe there was conversation that that would be attached to a documentary we were working on. Because... After we made Puddle Cruiser, we traveled around the country. You know, Puddle Cruiser went to Sundance, but it didn't get theatrical distribution. But like a band, you know, you, you can relate to this, like a band starting out, you kind of have to build a following.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. Press, promo, tour. Yeah, press yep. promo,
1: all kind of stuff, right? So we were performing in a, a small cabaret club in, in the West Village in New York for five years, but it wasn't really getting out that press promo kind of thing and building a following. So we said, why don't we take this movie, Puddle Cruiser, that we made, hop into a Winnebago, and we could probably drive around the East Coast because the states are so small. You could hit a lot of different cities, go to different different colleges, do a lot of bunch of student newspapers and stuff like that. So we traveled around for about a month with puddle cruiser and we would screen it at different schools and travel to the next school, travel around and do this press and problem. We were trying to build a following. And during that time we had somebody kind of following us around with the camera. So it's kind of fun to see us at an early age when we were this young band. Uh, trying to get the word out there about our first film, and uh, there, there's talk of making that into sort of a documentary, and uh, we may attach tinfoil monkey agenda. We t- I think there was talk of maybe putting tinfoil in
0: tinfoil monkey agenda on that. Love that. It's fair. I, I assume social media has been had it come had social media blown up like it is now, where everyone's their babies are doing it. Could would do you think that would have changed your trajectory in the sense of more people figure out who you were or like, even like when you guys were in a sketch comedy, like Broken Lizard, like if you guys had Instagram 15, 20 years ago, yeah. how would that have changed where you are now? are you happy? Obviously you guys are happy and successful, but are you happy how it kind of laps that way where social media now allows people to go back and post old videos, old clips and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, the fact that we did not have social media at the time, forced us to go shoot these two to three minute, um, movies. So when we were performing on stage, we would write a sketch that we'd perform, but then you had to have a little time to go change costumes. And so we'd make two to three minute movies that we'd show on stage in between sketches. Kind of like you might see on SNL. Yep. Um, and that sort of forced us, I think, to learn how to shoot film. Um, but I guess you, I guess that doesn't change anything if you currently have that on social media, I thought maybe that would say that it, you know, kind of taught us how to make movies in small increments, you know, slowly. But I guess if you have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, you're still learning how to shoot and make those films. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's Cause, you could definitely get more exposure
0: sooner, right? Because your fandom is there. Obviously, it was a crowdsourcing for Super Troopers too. So I, I assume that if you had guys that if Instagram was a thing back for Super Troopers. Like exponentially, you wouldn't have had to go on the Fox search site and be like, hey, there's an interest. Well, you can see the interest now because your social media, all your stuff, whether it's your individual stuff, Broken Lizard, or even rescue or the rescue show that uh, Steve and um, – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like now it's like you guys are – your social media is firing up everywhere. Like if this was back in Super Troopers' day, like you wouldn't have – the movie studios would be like, well, shit, people actually – Follow and support this.
1: You see followers. Yeah, it's true. Right You're on Sunset Boulevard now, and you see like you know YouTube stars with a certain amount of followers, and it's it's crazy. Those are the people that are getting um, you know TV shows and offers. Yeah, so yeah, probably would have helped us a lot.
0: So it's yeah. like I said that'd be my last question, but <laughs> I'm just thinking about this. Like the shows, *Impractical Jokers*. I find it funny. I've met a couple of guys, the the Tenderloins, whoever they're called, or whatever the troop name. But when you see something like that. My first thought is, well, Broken Lizard was doing this before. How come they're not on TV? Now I don't know if it's the same thing, obviously, but do you guys feel like you guys were like the first troop outside, say, SNL or Citizens Against Brigade, to actually do your own thing at your at your pace?
1: Yeah, I, I do love Unpractical Jokers. They're funny. Um, so you know, obviously, there's Money Python, and then we were very heavily influenced by Kids in the Hall, right. You know, in addition to like Second City, uh, you know SCTV, uh, Big John Candy stuff. So uh, we certainly weren't the first. There were uh, a lot of influences on us. The three biggest being Monty Python, Kids in the Hall, and SCTV. Uh, and I, I, I just lived on that stuff growing up. I mean, I couldn't get enough of all that stuff growing up. So um, I felt like we were in a proud tradition of sketch comedy.
0: Yeah, it's very fascinating. I think it's great that. I it's great to see that humor is still a thing and people to make laughs and be stupid on TV. And it's, uh, it's refreshing. So
1: in that advent, you know, we were around the advent of cable. You know, we were performing in New York at the, in the late 90s. And MTV was starting to move away from music videos and original programming. And they created a show called, one of the first shows they had was called You Write It, You Watch It. And the host was John Stewart really yeah and then they were putting together a sketch comedy group and we were starting to get a little bit oppressed by some c- comedy clubs that we were doing in the in the village at the time but ultimately we got beat out by the state do you remember the state
0: i have I'm familiar with it i'm not familiar with anything like specific per se but i know so,
1: yeah a bunch of guys popped out of it tom lennon ben Garand, yes uh you know they uh they did stella to show stella uh uh, just I mean, almost everyone in that in that show has gone on to something else. But they originally started this 11 person uh, sketch comedy team out of New York, NYU. And they they got that show on MTV, which then kind of veered us into movies. So be, if we had gotten that on television, we may have gone in a little different direction in our career. Right. But they they did that TV show. And then we moved more towards independent film, went to Sundance with Puddle Cruiser
0: love it well i wish you all the success of the world i wish the broken lizard you the guys great success and hopefully your wife's well and uh eventually this will uh open back oh. up again and uh we can grab some steaks
1: yeah for sure but thanks thanks for uh chatting but more importantly man i thought we were gonna talk about you today you have more i think and sure you can like than i do
0: yeah well you know it's you kind of uh right now it's been kind of crazy with obviously Covid affecting the touring side of it but uh a couple of months ago, I got my COVID compliance certificate, where they make you say you're not an expert, but well, whatever. I'll say I'm an expert in COVID, but uh, where you had to deal with movie sets and production sets, where you know with social distancing and masks and how to do temperature checks and so all this crazy learning. It's unfortunate that we have to do it because people are, are being affected by this illness, but the training's there to get it, and I chose to take the classes and do the testing, and uh, it's. Um, it's, i'm one of those people that hey if, if they're in a situation like you just can't wallow in your self-pity what can you do to get better And what can you do to help others and uh that's kind of what we're doing now
1: that's really cool but do you guys on your podcast ever talk about like what you did before you
0: were working with bands? oh yeah no for sure i a lot of times i always talk about it. if i jump on someone else's podcast it gets brought up because it comes out um, with all the secret service stuff and uh um, stuff like that so it's yeah it's fascinating those guys i know a bunch of people guys and girls that are still um in dc and stuff dealing with the craziness that is the world we right now and uh it's i do not envy being an officer or a um being law enforcement right now uh, they're dealing with a lot of craziness and uh,
1: yeah a lot so many different things too you know like just um so many different issues
0: yeah, I mean, you have the whole thing where it's defund the police and you have this whole thing of – then you have the, the actual riots and protesters and all this st- craziness going on right now. People are losing their loved ones. People are losing their jobs because of this. And you mix it all together. Domestic rates, violence rates are up. Suicide rates are up. Alcoholism is up. And borders are closed. Um, I can't see my girlfriend in Canada since last February. Wow. And so – you're just kind of like, what where am I gonna where am I how can I help the situation for other people? And I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. It uh, you know it's gotta stay busy, man. It's it's crazy.
1: Yeah. Well anyway, I love hearing your stories and we hung out. I love hearing, you know, about the Secret Service. Was the Nicolas Cage movie about the Secret Service guarding test? Wasn't that the one?
0: When- uh, no, the bodyguard with Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. There was that too, wasn't there? A guarding for yeah. Nicholas Cage. Yeah, was he that a senior service man? Yeah, I think so. Man, I love Nicholas
1: Cage. I'm just trying to think if he was. He's guarding like the first lady, or yeah, or
0: something. He got he got put on that detail because he did something stupid at work, or yeah. I have to watch that time maybe on the VHS. <laughs> and then what about then the Clint Eastwood movie, right? In yeah, and the line of are fire is a great one. That was great. Um, and then they have those uh, Gerard Butler ones where he did. Um, Oh, right. Olympus has fallen, London's right. fallen, right. Angel's fallen, and then White House Down with Jamie Foxx and Channing Tatum. Are those uh, accurate at all? I'm going to go on and let me say not very likely. Um, <laughs> as well, I got asked that the other day, and they're like, well, in uh, Olympus has fallen, the, the, the plane comes over. I'm like, well, the movie is – this is based after 9-11. There's no plane getting that close to the White House with FAA and all the – the stuff they have in place to prevent a ship, gunner ship, from doing whatever they want on the White House. Cars aren't driving in front of the White House or behind it. There's ballards. There's security measures in place where that's not going to happen. It's great entertainment. I love it. I love that they had. They killed 700 people on the White House lawn when there's not <laughs> that many people there working. <laughs>
1: Did you uh, were you working Social uh, Secret Service Social circuit. Were you working Secret Service on nine
0: eleven? I was not. No, I was actually in college. I actually I was in college from two thousand four to two thousand eight. Okay. East coast. Uh, yeah, Norwich University Military School in Vermont. Oh, cool. And uh, then I went to the Social Security business. Social Security business. And I was auditing. <laughs> I was auditing with the IRS. No, yeah. So I, it's uh, it's quite the. Uh, the background stuff, and uh, I did this podcast out of boredom last, starting last March when COVID first hit, and uh, it's really picked up. And it's cool talking to people like yourself who have interesting stories, obviously in what you do specifically, like the super and everyone can relate to it, but like the the prosthetic stuff, and, like it's very you have you're you a very cool story. I'm glad uh, to be a part of it.
1: I'd like to have shared shared
0: more. I'd like to have heard more of your story, and you know. Yeah, maybe you can do a podcast one day. And we can talk about that painting you did behind you. Hey, thanks.
1: I I did that uh, watercolors. I did that in like three days.
0: Now I assumed that was charcoal, but yeah, I see the watercolor now. Yeah,
1: it's very uh, very delicate pastels. Quite quite extraordinary, anything.
0: Yeah, I love it. So uh, I everything's good. <laughs> everything's good, man. And I appreciate you jumping on here with me. Good
1: talking to man. I won't keep any longer. We've been on here for almost an hour, boring the hell out of people.
0: Yeah, well, this will launch January, actually, Um, so we'll have time to kind of promo it and stuff. uh, But, yeah, man, thank you so much, and uh, we'll stay in touch. All right, man. Come back for a steak sometime. Done. Cheers.
2: Later. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready?